Welcome to this special episode of the Hypnosis Nerd Podcast. I'm Luke Chow, and joining me on this call is Charlotte Brammer of Toronto, Canada. Today is April 15th, 2020, and social distancing is still extremely important around the globe, and that's why this episode is being filmed online. Charlotte is a registered psychotherapist, EMDR therapy practitioner, certified hypnotherapist, and equine-assisted psychotherapist. She specializes in the treatment of obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and complex trauma. Charlotte has been in private practice since 2007, and her website is livingclarity.ca. Charlotte, thank you for joining me today. Can you, you're welcome. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Absolutely. So just a quick summary on sort of me. I guess I would say that uh, I've always been a highly sensitive individual. And so through exploring consciousness and through my experience with different people in my life, I became really passionate about learning how to heal, how to grow, how to experience my own consciousness and that really translated into the types of modalities I decided to look through and and learn from. So my practice mainly now is for individuals who experience anxiety, post-traumatic stress, who are basically ready to become accountable in their lives and to go through deep, profound healing and really, really start to create change. Fantastic. Well, I think that many people who are highly sensitive, that's also a label that's been applied to me, um, they have a different experience of life than many other people do. I mean, I kind of imagine that a cat or a dog has a different experience of life because they're more sensitive to different sounds or to even changes in atmospheric pressure. We'll talk about sort of how animals can communicate with human beings and teach us many things later on during this interview. But I think that human beings, even among our species, People who are highly sensitive have a different experience of life where even if your client is not or doesn't identify as a highly sensitive sensitive individual, there are things that you could teach them. So I guess one follow-up question is if you could say, especially during this time, during a pandemic where people are isolated, people are disconnected, many people are scared and anxious in their own homes, if you could say something to people in that situation, from your perspective, what do you think everyone should know about life and their experience of life? Right. So I think the biggest thing that I would say is that there's been a pause button pushed on the entire world. And we have an unprecedented opportunity to go within, take six deep breaths, calm our nervous systems, slow down, and really start to look at what's essential in our lives. When have we had the space away from our to-do lists, our jobs, our kids, where we could actually do that and say, what do I actually want? Do the systems actually work for me? And, you know, there's a lot of people right now who are just in absolute panic. There's a lot of single mothers who don't know how to, or single fathers who don't know how to go to the grocery store because it would mean leaving their children at home alone. 
we have a lot of individuals who don't know how to pay rent. So we have a wide variety of people in the emotional spectrum. And I think no matter where you are, whether it's in extreme anxiety or whether it's more calm and embracing and letting go in this process, anytime you can bring your nervous system back to calm, it is going to be helpful. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think is a good way for people to just kind of slow down to take six deep breaths? I mean, as a hypnosis practitioner, there is sort of this stereotype that we kind of help people do sort of a facilitated meditation. So obviously, I can make a recording that people can use. But when it comes to teaching people how to see their own bodies or their own experience of life as perhaps their own best source of comfort and stability and constancy, what might you teach to them? Right. Well, I think the very basic foundation that every human being and every animal on the planet needs is a feeling of safety in the body, right? So there has to be at least one time in your life where even if it was created from an external source, such as a situation or a person, where we did experience that sense of safety in our body. And so if you can recall that feeling, and it can help if you put your hands on your heart, it can help if you close your eyes, just in your next breath, try and build that sensation of safety in your body because despite popular belief, safety is something we create internally. It's not something external, right? It means that our nervous systems come down into our social operating system versus the danger system. You know, we come back more into alpha versus beta brain waves. So if we can cultivate this feeling of safety by connecting to our feet on the floor or seeing six things in our environment or smelling mm -hmm. a smell, hopefully a good one, right? Then we can reorient our nervous system into that feeling of safety. It sounds like the key word is grounding. Yes. So connecting with the fact that your current reality is you can take a breath, which at this point in time, millions of people around the world struggle to take a breath. You can feel that the feet is still stable beneath you. You can see that your home is still exactly as it should be, exactly as you left it. Um, you can see that everything around you is in order. Um, I, 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 I truly believe that usually the world is safer than your fears tell you, and your fears are usually misleading. I guess that raises a question, because I, I, I'm a practitioner that just prefers to tell it like it is, and I'll straight up tell a client that most of your fears and worries and doubts have misled you into thinking that the world is more dangerous than it is. And the truth is, it's going to be all right. Um, what do you think of that? Like, I actually completely agree. So uh, there's a comedian slash life coach, J.P. Sears, online. I love his stuff. He's amazing. And I was watching one of, it, one of his talks, and he said, if you pay attention to the voice inside your head, you'll have infinite amusement. Hmm. And it's really true because I would say probably 98% of our fears are not based in reality, mm -hmm. right? They're fictions, they're stories, they're make-believe ideas that we have about an unknown future, Right? They're mm -hmm. a narrative that we have. Oh, I did this thing, and now that person thinks this thing about me. All of it is make-believe. And while, yes, right now we do have a very real virus in the world, 
you know, if you take the proper steps and precautions to protect yourself, then that is enough, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we look at the level of fear that is required in most situations, it's actually very little. And what we actually need is critical thinking skills, healthy judgment. In psychotherapy, we use a word called discernment, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what's actually helpful. So if you look at most of your fears, I 100% totally am on board with your opinion that they're mostly, to use a word, crap. Yes. Awesome. Well, I'm going to loop around later to, to the point that critical thinking is important because many people think that hypnotherapy or even psychotherapy is about feeling emotions, accepting emotions almost uncritically. And yet we human beings have the power of rationality and applying the power of rationality to our experience or to our feelings will usually benefit us or will benefit us more often than not. So um, I will loop around to that. I, I want to come back around to the point that you made, which is that our minds create so many narratives and fears and worries and imaginings. And to tie that thought in with the theme that we're going to be teaching the listeners how to stay indoors and how to entertain themselves, what advice might you give for someone who is isolated? They've read all the books on their shelf, they've browsed Netflix and so on, and they're left with the richness of their own imagination. What might you say to leverage that to their advantage now that they have peace and quiet? So I'm going to break this down into a multi-point idea. Right. So first point, become aware of your mindset, right? I mean, I think a lot of people are suffering from boredom right now, hmm. and that's a mindset, right? So, and it's also not dangerous to be bored. So start paying attention to the way you're thinking. Are you thinking, oh my gosh, my liberties are taken away from me and I'm bored and I'm forced in here and it's torture. Well, yeah, then it's going to feel like torture. Or are you using it as a way to dive deeply into your consciousness to explore your inner workings? Are you using it to, and here's my second point, start exploring things that you actually like, right? When you really take away bars and clubs and you take away um, sports and you take away well, new video games, potentially, although now we can download online. So there's kind of infinite video games. Uh, but if you take away new Netflix shows because you've already binged them all, it leaves us with huge amounts of time where we can actually start exploring new things. What would it be like? And Amazon is still working. Stores are still shipping. So like, what would it be like to actually get some paint and mm -hmm. like try to paint? What would it be like to actually start learning a new skill set that you've always wanted to learn or a new language. I think we live so numb or we live so fast paced or we live to do rather than live to be that we forget that we can actually explore things that will enrich our lives, that will expand our brains, mm -hmm. that will expand our depth of feeling. And so one, become aware of your mindset and two, start exploring things that you've never done before that you might love. And I would say a key word, if uh, our listeners are going to just Google, it's the humanities. The humanities have been underappreciated in this world of science and technology. And yet, through more of human history than not, storytelling, music, art, philosophy have been what we engaged in 
at the end of a workday. So it used to be that people would be able to play more musical instruments. It used to be we would tell stories around the campfire. It used to be that after the hunt, when the sun went down, we had to cook our own food. And that's often a long-lost art in today's society. So I think that a revival of the humanities, all that we human beings do uniquely and creatively, is, um, is possibly one good thing that might come out of this uh, whole forced isolation. Completely agree. That may be a resurrection of ceremony. Yes. One of the questions that I have for you is that you're a practitioner of both hypnotherapy and psychotherapy. And uh, at least when I was training as a hypnotherapist or a consulting hypnotist is the term we use these days, um, there was some, at least what I perceived to be, animosity between psychotherapists and hypnotherapists, where hypnotherapists often had almost a paranoid view that psychotherapists were out to get them. Um, And yet you sort of straddle both spheres. And I've invited you to the show called The Hypnosis Nerd. So in, in your view, what do you see as the, the similarities and the differences between these two practices? And do you think that um, comparing and contrasting them is an unnecessarily contentious exercise to do? Oh, it's completely unnecessary because they are Psychotherapy and hypnotherapy are like best friends. Hmm. They work incredibly well together um, and they work within different fields, right? So they're complementary fields. So I think that on both sides, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And in recent years with information being so readily available, I think that 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 gap has been being closed. So Mm -hmm. where I use hypnosis is probably going to be a little bit different than a consulting hypnotist um, because I often will put some psychotherapy into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the biggest differences that I sort of have discerned throughout my practice and through knowing many different practitioners in both fields is that hypnosis is incredibly powerful and incredibly useful for helping people learn how to resource themselves. So, you know, we have an epidemic right now of depression and anxiety and, well, now after COVID, more than likely OCD in our society. And hypnosis is incredibly powerful in helping teach people that they actually have vast amounts of control over the way that they think and feel. Mm-hmm. And it teaches people how to calm. It gives them tools and resources on how to do that. And this actually directly benefits a psychotherapist because in psychotherapy, our goal is to one fine tune now, which mm-hmm. I think from a hypnotist standpoint is more in the realm of where hypnotists work, right? Making mm-hmm. now better. Yes. But in psychotherapy, we also have a secondary goal of going back into the past and healing mm-hmm. trauma and freeing up the energy systems that are stuck so that mm-hmm. the person can then use that energy to make now better. So hypnosis does a lot of the groundwork that psychotherapists require in order to be able to go back into the past and do that deeper trauma work. That's interesting because I've always seen it as the other way around, where psychotherapy, by handling the past and resolving past trauma, 
lays the groundwork for a hypnotherapist or a hypnotist to uh, have a stable foundation to build on and then do the present and forward-looking work. But I guess both both are important. They can't really yes. be separated from no. one another. And you're right. Once the deeper work is done, that's where the hypnotist steps back in and can then fine tune the now, right? And that's so it's, if we look at the way trauma stops people from being able to, to make change. So, you know, eat, disordered eating is one of the easiest realms that we can take a look at because mm -hmm. so many people suffer from disordered eating, mm -hmm. whether it's overeating, whether it's, you know, actual anorexia or bulimia or eating disorders. Until the trauma is dealt with, that disordered eating behavior and the relationship to food is more than likely not going to change because it has too many secondary gains. So we do need calm first, which is where the hypnotist can really help. Then we need to go in and clean up the trauma. And then the hypnotist can work with the disordered eating to help the client with their motivation and their willpower and to change their relationship to food. So it's sort of and this is why I say they're very complementary and they can happen at the same time. Hmm. Well, if a listener uh, wants to work with, let's pick emotional eating, mm -hmm. and they're not sure whether they've had trauma or whether they've had trauma that affects their eating, how might they be able to discern whether they should see a psychotherapist first to resolve the trauma and to work with the trauma, or if they should just start off with hypnotherapy? So I would say that if they don't feel like they have a ton of trauma, they can't really go wrong doing one way or the other. Because as long as you have a hypnotist who is practicing um, within the scope of their field and they are qualified and they do know what they're doing, then you can't technically make an issue there, mm -hmm. right? Um, studying the, the weight loss scripts and studying that, that I mean, it's not what I particularly am gifted at, so I don't do mm -hmm. it. <laughs> yep. But, you know, you're not going to create more damage. And anytime you can help a client feel empowered or anytime you can help them just recognize the difference between an empowering and a disempowering choice, that can be helpful. Mm -hmm. And if at some point the process gets stuck, that might then determine that they need to go a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's, you're not going to do any damage by doing one way or the other. Fantastic. Well, I've often found that people who present with issues like emotional eating or smoking cessation or, say, the fear of public speaking um, are self-medicating because of past hurts. And in some cases, the hurts are not so severe that they have to revisit them. In some cases, the hurts are so severe that they have to revisit and then heal from the past hurts. So sometimes they just have to pick an approach, start to explore themselves, and as long as the messaging is beneficial, which is a point I'm going to loop around to in a moment, but as long as the messaging is beneficial and the practitioner knows what they're doing, then picking any approach is better than being paralyzed by trying to pick one out of a whole universe of different approaches. Absolutely. And there's also lots of individuals that just don't have tools or resources or skills to calm down. And so they go to food or they go to smoking. And once they actually have a skill set of how to calm or how to, you know, emotionally detox from a mm -hmm. tough day, right, yeah. then 
naturally that those behaviors fall away. Hmm. So it might not even be trauma related. It could just be that, you know, they were never taught the skills. Well, that's, that's a very useful point to make that I think a lot of practitioners need to hear because I've often heard hypnotherapists claim that all fears or all, uh, self-harming or detrimental habits are rooted in trauma. And I think that's too absolute of a statement. And in many cases, you're right. They just never had better habits modeled to them. They were never taught healthy eating habits or healthy decision-making. And as soon as you step in to say, well, here's how a healthy person does it, here's how a healthy person thinks or decides, all of a sudden it clicks and there's yep. no shame in learning as an adult what was not taught to you as a child, especially since we're members of the smartest, most adaptable species on the planet. So as long as the listeners see themselves as lifelong learners, then really there's no need in every case to revisit the past. And yes. instead, you can just adopt as an adult the kinds of attitudes and perspectives and beliefs that will serve you today and in the future. Um, one of the points I was going to loop back to is that um, in Ontario, psychotherapists are regulated. There is the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario, and they have their standards, they have their, um, their educational requirements and continuing education requirements and so on. But hypnotism or hypnotherapy is not regulated. Um, and I myself believe that some practitioners are taking cases that are beyond their training or out of their depth. And I also think that some of them are promoting ideas that could even be harmful to their clients. And I'll give you two examples. Um, many practitioners, many hypnotherapists will do something called past life regression under the idea that we human beings, um, well, first are reincarnated after we die, and we carry a karmic debt, and the karmic debt is um, then paid in future incarnations. I think I might be oversimplifying it, but essentially that it's not because of childhood trauma or earlier life trauma. It's because of trauma that happened before you were even born. Um, and many hypnotists or hypnotherapists will take people into past lives. And I think it could be detrimental because if the client has actual childhood trauma, then the practitioner is not addressing the cause of their issues. And the practitioner is delaying proper treatment of that trauma. Um, another example of uh, where um, a poorly informed practitioner could, I think, do harm to their clients is if a client sees them for depression and the practitioner has the idea that uh, uncritical, absolute positivity um, is the way to speak to the client, then there's going to be a huge disconnect between the practitioner's um, state of mind uh, versus how the client's feeling, and that might discourage the client from seeking further help. It might cause the client to believe, for example, that they're unfixable. So um, my uh, two questions for you are, do you agree that um, that an unskilled or poorly informed practitioner can do harm to their clients, that hypnosis is not, in other words, totally safe. 
And um, if we can't look at certification or licensure or registration as a mark of competence, how would you yourself interview or pick a hypnotherapist or a consulting hypnotist um, for yourself or for a client of yours? Good question. So first, I absolutely agree that a poorly trained or potentially somewhat ignorant practitioner can do damage. So within any type of therapeutic relationship um, and, you know, hypnosis, I would classify it as a therapeutic relationship just in the way that the hierarchy is, right? So if you have um, a client who's coming in who is looking to you for help with emotional, mental issues. And again, like within hypnosis, usually those are not as severe as within psychotherapy, then they're still going to be pedestalizing you. Right. And Mm -hmm. so as a practitioner, no matter what your field, part of our job is to help them realize that we are just humans because someone's coming in with such intense vulnerability. And because someone is coming in with such intense hope, you know, you can potentially do bad hypnosis or, and this is not just within hypnotists and consulting hypnotists. This is in any field. There are bad therapists everywhere. I would probably say 30% of my own practice is trying to heal the attachment trauma of bad therapy. Um, now that being said, hypnosis, there is a school, right? And there is the national guild of hypnotists, which is not like the CRPO. Um, but I think it would be really helpful in the future if we could look for some type of registry process, look for some form of certification on maybe even like a, it would be interesting to see if we could could go global with that just so that we could have the same sort of approach. We could have more of a centralized sharing process because, you know, if we look at different countries around the world, they're all doing very unique cutting edge research and it can, you know, so anyway, I think that there's a lot of potential and a lot of possibility, but until then for me, I interview every practitioner that I work with Mm -hmm. and I ask, specific questions. How long have you been in practice? What is your methodology? Whose work would you say you most closely align with? Um, Mm -hmm. Things like, what is your belief system or your ideology around the client-practitioner relationship? Right? So questions for you that are going to help you decide if this person is safe or if they know what they're doing. I would even potentially ask them to Describe what the process is like, right? Describe what, you know, and it's hard for any practitioner in any field to be able to give you a timeline. Mm-hmm. That is so individual. But say, like, what does the process usually look like? So as an example in psychotherapy, you, you can say that it's four phases, right? You have the first phase, which is intake, which never truly ends. You have the second phase, which is stabilization, where we do teach the tools and skills and teach people how to regulate themselves. Then in phase uh, three, we have reprocessing, which is where we do the deeper healing and trauma work. And then stage four, which lots of people refer to as the termination phase, I prefer graduation phase. Hmm. Termination just feels a little bit... Um, So graduation, which is where, you know, 
ultimately the client fires the therapist because they've graduated and attained what they wanted, Mm -hmm. which is a good, bittersweet day. Well, it's reassuring, I I think, to hear that there is that graduation phase at the end, because one of the fears that I think many people have about starting psychotherapy is they're worried that the rabbit hole will never end, and it's going to go on for the next 20 years. So starting with that end in mind, I think is important. Um, and I, I, I think that sometimes people seek hypnotherapy because they're hoping to reach the graduation phase after one session or after three sessions. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it's not that it never happens like that, but um, you're, you're right. The, the timeline can be hard to predict. One analogy that I'll use is that the same instructor can teach 30 students, and the grades on the final exam will range from F all the way up to A+, even though all the students had the same instructor and sat in the same classes. So um, th- thank you for that. Um, when it comes to your own work, if you have a client and... Um, you've had a few sessions with them, so they're past the intake phase, and you were deciding whether you wanted to use hypnotherapy or hypnosis versus other forms of psychotherapy. When would you pick to use hypnosis, and when would you clearly pick not to use hypnosis? So I actually use hypnosis with every single client, unless they have an aversion to it. So you do get those unique individuals who are extremely afraid of losing control. And mm-hmm. no matter how many times you tell them that hypnosis is not a loss of control, mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't buy it. So um, I use it with every single client. And the reason I do that is because, one, again, it is the best way to teach people how to have a somatic visceral experience of calm and safety in their bodies. Mm-hmm just plain and simple. And two, it is also an extremely beneficial way to create a buffer between them and what they potentially may or may not feel. So in normal beta, where we're in sort of potentially high beta, which is more threat response, our feelings feel extremely real. It's called an amygdala hijack. So our amygdalas hijack our prefrontal cortexes and we become our feeling. So We've all had the experience probably in our lives of being so afraid that we just like left. We just had to Mm -hmm. get out of there. We did whatever we had to do and we left. And then outside we go, holy, how did I get here? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's an amygdala hijack. Now that's an extreme case. But in hypnosis, because we're facilitating the brain down into theta, there is more space between a feeling or a thought and the eye that is witnessing that feeling or thought. And so it's actually very helpful from a psychotherapy standpoint at that point for me to be able to go in and show them how to witness, how to track. We can actually look at the way dissociation might be set up in the system. And, you know, we could talk about more what dissociation is if there's time for that. But uh, just, you know, brief, brief summary, we all do it. TV is a dissociative process. So... If we can, from this place of space and calm and safety, witness with curiosity rather than judgment our internal experience, it creates, by and large, way more compassion 
for our process and more understanding and wisdom about our process. And also we, we can laugh because a lot of our thoughts are ridiculous. Well, one metaphor I've been using um, since last Halloween, actually, is that uh, if your mind is like a haunted house, then anxious thoughts, fearful thoughts are like the cardboard cutouts that pop up to give you a cheap scare. Now, there's no actual substance behind the thought. The thoughts only have the uh, appearance of being intimidating or threatening or potentially harmful. But if you try to put your hand through it, there's no substance behind it. And it is just like the cardboard cutouts inside a haunted house. And in hypnosis or outside hypnosis, that metaphor seems to resonate with people. Feel free to steal it. Um, another, I just might. <laughs> a similar one is like horror movies. I mean, if you uh, are so immersed in the horror movie that you feel like you're in the darkened forest, then of course your body will react as though you were facing down a threat. But if you take a step back, look around you, see that you're in your living room or in a movie theater, and you can turn up or down the volume, you can hit pause if you want to, well, then the horror movie is not as scary, and it's seen as just a movie rather than reality. So framing anxious or uh, fearful thoughts as being unreal, it comes back to a point that we made earlier, but I, I, I think it's an important thing to do. Somewhat, Absolutely. It's somewhat Buddhist-influenced, too, which is a, a point I, I wanted to, to raise earlier in that it, it's kind of like, um, especially those who live alone or um, with a small group of roommates, um, it, it's like we've all been forced during this shutdown to live like monks. We have to eat more simply. We have to live more simply. We have a lot of uh, spare time, a lot of quiet to reflect and to study. And some people will take a sabbatical for a couple months to be in a nature reserve or maybe even in a monastery for a few years to have that experience as something on their bucket list. And even though none of us chose the timing of this, one way to see the current situation that so many of us are in is to see it as th this this is time to kind of uh, um, reflect to uh, um, to hone your mind to explore your consciousness um, and there is a wealth and a richness of experience that many people never discover because they don't set aside the time to look inside their own heads and to do things like separating the real thoughts that refer to something in reality from the illusionary thoughts that don't refer to anything that's in reality. Well, and it's really, I mean, the more down this rabbit hole you go, it becomes extremely fascinating because if we look at the mechanism of thought, the body can't tell the difference between an external situation and an internal thought. <laughs> so right now, in my reality, I'm here talking with you over my laptop. My dog's over there sleeping very quietly, thankfully. Hopefully at some point she doesn't go on a barking rampage. But if I look around my reality right now, I am perfectly safe. And I'm actually having a lot of fun. But if I were to think the thought, I'm in danger, my heart rate just started going because my body cannot tell the difference between my external reality and a thought inside my head. Mm -hmm. And so this is where, you know, I'm going to use the word vigilance 
comes in because if you let every thought slip through your conscious awareness, then you are at the whim of a lot of stuff. But if you start becoming aware of it and you start unidentifying with thinking, like I think the biggest disservice to human beings was the statement, I think, therefore I am. Hmm. Because that is not true. I've had many a time where I'm not thinking and yet I still am. Hmm. Right? So if we can disidentify with our thoughts being us or our feelings being us, then we can look at them more critically. Mm-hmm. Right? But if I'm attached to my thoughts as me, then I'm going to feel like I'm going to be annihilated if I start trying not to think certain ways. Hmm. You had mentioned earlier that all of your clients are now seeing you online through um, online video conferencing software. Um, and I, as well, am seeing all of my clients online, or I'm making them a recording offline and then emailing them with a recording, usually for returning clients, usually not as a first experience. Um in your experience, have you found that online therapy or telehealth or virtual hypnosis is just as good as in-office work? For the most part, yes. Um, and this is not, like, my practice has been online for a while. Uh, it just has only been for a few individuals who are around the world. Um, and it was just, it worked out more easily that way. But uh, I find... Outside of the somatic relational psychotherapy in which touch is a part of that therapy, um, I find it's just as helpful. I mean, with hypnosis, we go off of a lot of body cues. So the breath, you know, eye movements, there's a look on people's faces that happens when they go more internal. Mm -hmm. The eyes underneath become a bit more hollow so you can see Mm -hmm. when they're processing versus when they're not. Um, so as long as you still have that visual, you can absolutely still do things like hypnosis or even EMDR mm-hmm. over something like Zoom or over a private network. Um, one thing I do notice that is a little bit different is because you are not in physical proximity, um, there isn't as much of an energy exchange. Mm. So like as a practitioner, I notice that after a day of six clients, I don't feel quite as drained when I'm doing online versus when I'm, and that could have to do with driving through Toronto. It's highly likely because <laughs> right now I don't there's, have to. But There's also the psychological yeah. distancing whenever you engage with people online as opposed to in the same office. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, people famous, anonymous people on the internet famously have a reputation for just cutting off their nicer feelings because online there is more of this sense of anonymity or there is sort of a sense of distancing almost like your pixels on a screen as opposed to a real live human being whereas in office you're clearly a real live human being and i i just remembered what i was going to say one of the things i was going to say earlier to your point which is i'm glad you phrased what you said as the body doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined because some people some practitioners will actually say the mind doesn't know the difference or that the brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's imagined. But anyone whose brain can't recognize the difference is literally psychotic or dreaming. So I'm glad you phrased it like that, because um, some people uh, would make a stronger claim that I think is um, not true to reality, but what you've said is absolutely right. Yeah. That's very good clarification. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, 
from your website. It's obvious that you love horses, and of course you've incorporated your work with horses in your professional work um, in therapy. What do you think that horses specifically, um, as well as other animals, can teach human beings? And why do you think that it's horses rather than cats or dogs that are typically used to assist in psychotherapy? So, uh, one, their nervous systems are gigantic. So their measurable EEG, so their electromagnetic field around their hearts, is enormous. And so whenever we are around an animal whose nervous system is much larger than ours and is also much calmer than ours, it actually allows our own electromagnetic fields to start down-regulating, hmm. right? And by that, I mean coming into calm. Hmm. And so if we look at, and, you know, there's a lot of research with dogs as well, and they're just as proficient in, in helping humans heal as horses are. Uh, but there's something about being with a prey animal, right, whose major instincts are to flee, who will then trust you enough to potentially be in a scary situation and not run away, right? It's incredibly powerful when this, and some of them are like 2,000 pounds. Now, that's a huge horse, mm -hmm. right? On average, the horses that I work with are around 1,100 to 1,500 pounds. But that's a very, very large animal. And when you have that kind of power, I mean, one kick and you could die. Mm -hmm. Like they are very strong. And yet they just want to be with you. They just want to unconditionally love you. And they really demand healthy boundaries. They demand coherency, right? If you're angry and you're pretending you're not, hi, horsey. Oh, they're going to be nowhere near you, mm -hmm. right? So they demand that you become coherent inside. They, and if you're angry and you own it, they'll sit there with you. And often they will like just watch while you go through a process. Um, so, you know, personally, I find that their nervous systems coupled with that unconditional love and being able to really learn a nonverbal language. Like, and this is where I think all animals are profound teachers. I think that in a lot of ways, language has become very limiting in humanity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an amazing gift and it allows us to be very creative. But at the same time, if we think of language versus symbol, language is extremely limiting. Mm -hmm. Whereas symbolism is very broad, right? This is why people speak through art because you can portray a thousand messages and a hundred feelings in an image. Mm -hmm. Whereas you'd have to write like an essay to be able to demonstrate with words. And so when you work with an animal in a nonverbal realm, your depth of experience becomes so much broader and so much deeper. And it becomes very body focused and very body centered. And very quickly, you can tell if you're dissociating or not. So I think for me, I feel outside of their nervous system, it's the nonverbal realm that has the most potential to create existential and experiential healing. Awesome. I remember the second thing I was going to say that slipped my mind earlier, which is that in today's society, possibly because of Descartes, possibly just because it's the modern world, um, we tend to overvalue thoughts and knowledge and cognition. We tend to undervalue somatic experience as well as emotion. So if you kind of see a whole human being as having a mind and a heart and a body, 
all of which are under their stewardship. So many people cater to their minds because it makes money in their career. At the same time, they ignore their heart and its needs, and they ignore their body and its needs. And you might even reduce down a smoking habit or an overeating habit or so many other unhealthy habits as a neglect of the heart and all that it needs and a neglect of the body and all that it needs. One thing that I often say to clients is sometimes you don't need to go eat food, but you do need some companionship. You do need some stress relief. You do need a, a break. You do need some comfort, and any of those things will fulfill your needs much better than food, which only fulfills the need for nutrition and energy. So I just wanted to come back around to that. And that's a brilliant point. Uh, brilliant, because... It is true. So often when we go to these self-medication tools, what we're doing, or rather what we should be doing is taking a breath, sitting down, becoming still and checking in, what do I actually need right now? Or what does a part of me need right now? It might not even be all of me. Mm -hmm. And it's never a cigarette. No. 85% of us <laughs> never smoke cigarettes and we're perfectly alive and happy and healthy and well. Yes. Yeah. Um. Many practitioners develop their own principles, their own practices beyond what they learned in school or through books and conferences, especially as they gain more years of professional experience. Um, the questions are, how has your approach matured over the years? And is there anything you learned way back in the first years of your career that you no longer believe in? Oh, yeah. So... I feel, you know, continuing education is always part of that growth, but I think internal and personal growth is by and large a better teacher, at least for me. And so the ways that I have grown in my own ability to be more free, to be more, more coherent, um, to be more present has allowed me to be able to shift my own nervous system so that I can then present a unique nervous system to the client, right? And it also allows me to say like, okay, so when I had OCD or when I had my anxiety disorder, this is what it felt like and these were the purposes it serves. And there's a normalization that happens when you do your own healing work and you can share that process. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of stuff that I no longer believe. Um, also, I realized looking back in the first few years of my practice, I knew nothing, <laughs> you know, and I, and every year I go through my practice, I realize I still know nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think the biggest thing that I had to step out of was the idea that I was the one helping someone, mm -hmm. right. Or that I had to do something. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in order to be a practitioner, nowadays it's extremely expensive like overhead is ridiculous and so unfortunately within private practice you know fees have to be a little bit higher and you know if you're not in private practice it's there's such a long wait list to get into therapy so the system is extremely flawed but there's always this sense of like oh i'm charging this much money i have to do this much work hmm. um and so i think the biggest thing that i had to unlearn was to not work just to be clear, that's a pressure you're putting on yourself. It's not 100%. something clients verbalize. Okay. hundred um, percent. And, you know, this is the whole sense of like, well, I have to be doing, hmm. which North America is so fond of. 
And yes, this is very much my own, my own process and my own journey. Um, and when you can let go and just be in the moment, you enter into a place of flow in session and the client shows you where they need to go. And it feels almost effortless. And yes, I do bring in tools and skills or hypnosis or like I have a lot of different um, methods that I could potentially say like, oh, I feel like this might fit here. But ultimately, it is very client directive. And so as my practice continues to mature, I have had to really let go. And the less of me that's in session, the better. Kind of like with a horse. Yes, 100%. Well, it's your ego, really, that's not intruding into the session. It's the ego you've set aside. It's not like you, yourself, has left the room. It's that it's the ego that's been suspended. Yes. Um, I think the other thing that I've really had to let go of is that therapy is complex, hmm. right? Because if we simplify the healing process, it could be simplified to three things. Create safety, allow someone to move through an experience, being witnessed by a safe other. Hmm. That is it. So every practitioner has certain things that they say over and over again to their clients. So one example I gave to you earlier is that anxiety is like a haunted house and the anxious thoughts are just cardboard cutouts. They have no power to harm you or even to intimidate you. So I keep saying that, and very often I hear that it's the first time they heard it explained like that. And I'm sure you have certain things you say as well, where it just rings true with people, and you wish you could say it to a million people at the same time. So if you could pick out a few of those thoughts, a few of those ideas that you wish everyone just knew, what would they be? Oh, so many, but I'm going to try and simplify. So my first and foremost, because I love boundaries and I love talking about boundaries and teaching boundaries is that boundaries are neutral. Boundaries do not hurt people. They do not take away or infringe on another person's rights. Right? Boundaries are a way to self-respect. And when we have proper boundaries, we actually not only keep ourselves safe, but we actually help the people around us feel safe because they don't have to psychically intuit what is a yes and a no for us. They don't have to intuit what's okay and what's not okay. Mm-hmm. Right? So they are neutral. Well, it's, it's unfortunate that it has to be said because in a healthy household, it does not have to be said. But then people who grew up in healthy households very often don't end up in therapy. That's so, true. It's, it's when someone grew up with boundary-violating parents or caregivers or sometimes siblings or teachers, that's when they have to hear that you can assert a boundary without hurting the other person. I think another one that sort of ties in on the back of boundaries is that I don't really, I think most people don't understand what the word selfish actually means, hmm. right? I think a lot of people think having needs is selfish. That's not true. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who think having an opinion is selfish and that's not true. So if I, I mean, and I don't actually have the Webster's dictionary definition of selfish, but the best way that I have come to describe it to people is that if you are doing a selfish act, then you are doing something that you know will hurt another person without their consent. Hmm. Right. So 
knowingly hurting. So say, say you had an apple and it was the only piece of food in your home and I came to visit you and I wanted that apple and I knew that you wouldn't have another thing until tomorrow because you couldn't go grocery shopping, but I ate it anyway. <laughs> that would be selfish of me, especially if I can come home and eat my own food, right? But having a boundary or having a need or asking for help or just wanting some self-time, none of those things are selfish, mm-hmm. right? Taking care and meeting your own needs is not selfish. Yeah. Well, one standard to apply is that if you would want it for a friend or even just a neighbor or a stranger, then you deserve it for yourself too. And it's not selfish to pursue for yourself what you would very easily recognize for a friend. Um, One other way that I sometimes phrase it is that um, it's not to put yourself above or in front of or before other people. It is instead to include yourself among all people you care for. So that's another way to restate that if you want it for a friend, then to have it for yourself is just fair. Absolutely. Well, ultimately, as an adult, you are your own responsibility, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we all need community. We all need tribe. We all need help every now and then. But, you know, other adults are busy. Like they're hungry. They're moody. They're whatever. They have children. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not their job to resource you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if we do not take care of ourselves because we view it as selfish, we're actually doing a disservice to everyone around us because then we're going to have to rely on other people to do that resourcing. Well, that loops back to something you said, or maybe I'm restating what you said, which is that um, we have to be our own best sources of comfort and stability and safety and relaxation and all the good feelings. That's not really something they teach you when you graduate high school or become an adult. They should. I mean, I wish. I've, I've, I, 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 I'm still somewhat working on my YouTube series, Things Your Parents Should Have Told You But Didn't, A Guide yep. for Adults. Um, yep. but, but one of them is that uh, as an adult, fewer and fewer people are going to go out of their way to give you comfort or to give you praise or to give you positivity. But the beautiful part of that is that now you get to give it to yourself. You don't have to look outside yourself for positivity or praise or any of the good stuff. And for the rest of your life, you'll be an adult, which means for the rest of your life, you don't just have to be self-critical. You can also, in the privacy of your own mind, be self-congratulatory. You can praise yourself. You can pump yourself up. And in the privacy of your own mind, there's no shame in doing so whatsoever because to only give yourself criticism without praise or positivity is not just unfair, but abusive. It's very abusive. I agree. And for the people who are going to potentially interpret this and take it to the other extreme, it is still beautiful and amazing to hear praise from the people around you. Right? Yes. And it is still perfectly okay to be having a bad day and reach out to Susan and say like, hey, Susan, do you have an hour? Like I could just really use a friend. And it's perfectly okay for Susan to be like, you know what? I can't today. Can we do it tomorrow? Because if you are fully accountable and you know how to resource yourself, then you're going to be okay, even if it takes Susan a week, right? So it's not that we want to not rely on others. It's not that we want to be totally self-sufficient because that's another form of abuse. But we have to be able to, no matter what, resource ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because 
people can't always be there. I, I never intended to say that we are exclusively our only sources of positivity or and comfort you, or praise. You didn't it's, say that. I'm just trying to okay. play devil's advocate for Got all it. of the different variations of people's thinking out there. Got it. Yeah. If you were to wildly speculate about the future of mental health and the treatment of mental health issues, what do you see in your crystal ball? Mm. That is a very loaded question based on the fact that society is imploding right now. <laughs> well, we've, 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 we've talked about how um, what you, you've said how little you know, and the longer you practice, the more you realize how little you know. But I would generalize that to say that humanity knows very little about mm -hmm. mental health and happiness. In some ways, we're not even incentivized to pursue good mental health or happiness. Um, so, um, you know, what we're starting from is this idea that current treatments can be improved. Current modalities are not the be-all and the end-all. This current uh, worldwide crisis and shared trauma is going to have ripple effects for years and decades to come. And we're not even at the peak yet. Um, so yes, I, 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 I think there's going to be an increased need once things start to gain a semblance of normality again. Um, please continue. But yeah. But yeah. If, if, so if we're looking in the crystal ball, so to speak, I feel first of all, that we have really come to a place where we no longer can deny in any way that our current system does not work. And I think that we're going to have to really look at all the cutting edge science of epigenetics and neuroscience and um, all of these newer modalities that are coming out and the research potentially into psychedelic assisted therapy um, are some potential places that we can go. I think also as our society revolutionizes itself, I really truly believe that we need to stop looking at mental health or emotional or physical health as one individual in the privacy of their own therapeutic relationship. I think we need to start looking at it more from the lens of tribe. I think we're going to need to start really honoring elders in our society again and bringing elder wisdom back. I think we're going to have to look at potentially moving more into tribe wellness and community as a healing tool. So I think what we're looking at is you know, over the past hundred years with all of our technology and all of our groundbreaking new resources, we have become a society of separation. Hmm. And that's become extremely clear. And separation is where shame grows. Separation is where mental health deteriorates. So if I could look at where I think as a people we need to go in our healing. I really do see that we need a resurgence of ceremony. We need a resurgence of tribe. We need a resurgence mm -hmm. of elder wisdom, of community. Um, and I think we need to change our relationship to mental and emotional health and potential, you know, mental health privilege. Mm -hmm. And these conversations are going to go a long way to potentially educating people to be able to start having those conversations. Cause these are complex issues, but I think 
one of the beautiful things of COVID that we are recognizing is that when mankind is united, we can make change very quickly. I mean, within three weeks, the whole world is shut down and there's no air travel. If you were to look at a month ago, you would have said that that's impossible. I mean, I know I would have said that that's impossible, like shut down air traffic. What? So if we can unite and if we can keep united, Mm -hmm. that's where I think healing needs to go. One thing, one good thing that might come out of this COVID pandemic um, and the fact that half the planet right now is under some kind of mandated lockdown or shutdown is that um, in, in many science fiction movies, it's when the aliens invade that humanity recognizes their similarities and their commonalities and they unite together to uh, defeat the aliens. And we're kind of in that situation today, only it's not a space alien. It's a virus that wasn't in human beings just a couple or just a few months ago, uh, but that now humanity has united to defeat and to eradicate off the face of the planet so that we can resume our normal lives. So I myself am hoping that this current situation unites humanity rather than divides us. I am hoping that as people um, have more time to introspect and reflect, that they'll realize they don't need to buy the next thing or to achieve the next thing to find happiness or entertainment or whatever else it, it might be. I'm hoping that perhaps after this uh, staycations, um, develop a new uh, prestige or cachet and that there are some positive, at least environmental, uh, outcomes to this uh, to to current events. I completely agree, and I want to take it even a step farther because if we look at the two core motivators of mankind, it's fear or love, hmm. right? Not feel something or feel something. And it's true when there has been a quote unquote threat, mankind has been very good unifying from a place of fear and we do that through using the hammer we do it through control we do it through enforcing right we do it through sacrifice and i'm really excited to start the conversation of what if we could actually switch that into unifying through love and through hope and through wanting to create change from a place of what we're doing is no longer working and that excites me Right. What if we could, rather than using the hammer, what if we could start creating change based on a place of desire to grow and to thrive and to feel better and to support one another and the planet and through interconnectedness versus separation, right? Because when we come back to a place of being interconnected and we, we recognize that we are a part of everything and everything is a part of us, it's a lot harder to abuse the planet or each other or to infringe on someone else's rights, or to allow governments to potentially continue to infringe on our rights long past the point where we don't need to anymore, because there's always a potential next virus, or there's always a potential next war. So at what point do we have to say, like, the essential things in my life, like being able to touch other human beings, um, have a hug, you know, like, because it, it could be very easy right now for society to say, we're going to social distance for the rest of everyone's lives. And that's not a society I want to be part of, mm-hmm. right? Like right now, it's very necessary for very specific reasons. But at some point, as a species, we need to move from fear and using the hammer 
to tribe and unity and creating from a place of love and compassion. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a voice. Mm -hmm. Everyone has the ability to relay things like what you've said, um, or they have the ability to relay what they might have heard the angry person on television say. And I think it's important to add to the public discourse um, more of these kinds of ideas because everybody does have a voice. If there's one thing that's coming out of the current times, it's that when faced with a common enemy, in this case a virus, humanity, um, well, I mean, the virus doesn't discriminate based on the country you live in uh, mm -hmm. or your gender or um, your religion, or where you are on the political spectrum, or whether you live in a city or in a rural area, it sees us as human and therefore potential hosts. And we have to make sure that uh, we humanity stands united so that the virus doesn't get any more headway into our lives or our good health. Absolutely. And, it's, and it really is, like at least in the experiences that I have had going to the grocery stores or speaking with people um, through, you know, online programs, it has really begun making us consider one another, right? Because I don't wear the face mask for me. I wear it because it, if I am potentially asymptomatic, then I'm not going to be as you know, Trudeau said, I think it was like moistly breathing on people. <laughs> like, ugh. He did say that. Oh, he did. It's a word that should never be spoken unless it's in front of cake. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I think we really are having an opportunity right now to be more considerate. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good note to end on. Thank you for joining me. It's, it's good to connect. It's good to reconnect. Um, are there any final parting thoughts that you have for the listeners? Um, if there's any uh, next step that you want them to take, if there's, you know, it doesn't have to be you, but if there's like a favorite YouTube video or a website or a book you think they should read, here's your chance to share it with the listeners. Absolutely. So I would say probably the best thing I could tell people is limit the amount of news you take in on a daily basis because News is just like the anxiety thoughts. We need to be current. We need to understand the protocols that are going to keep us safe. We need updates. But if you're watching news six hours a day, you are bombarding your nervous system with fear. And that's not, that's a level of fear that's not helpful. So, and this is going to look different for each person, but find your own quota of how much news works for you and try to limit it. Because I do know a lot of people who have it on 24 hours a day, mm -hmm. and they are in pure terror right now. Well, to, to expand upon that thought, there's always good news in the world, and there's always bad news in the world. And what seems to get the views on television or the eyeballs for a blog is the bad news. And yet good news is out there. So I want to give a shout out to COVID19recovery.net. They're a team in Toronto scouring the news, the COVID-19 news, for good news, and then posting it on that website, COVID19recovery.net. Um, once again, it's Luke Chow from the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis. Joining me is Charlotte Brammer. Um, her website is www.livingclarity.ca. Um, I'm Luke Chow from the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada, where we make hypnosis make sense. <laughs>